Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. George, you have black deer running around on your ranch. Uh, yeah, you heard that right, people. Uh, deer that are black in color. Uh, you might think of like, uh, you know, the Carolina Panthers or, uh, man, what other, like a blackbird or, you know, a, the raven, right? I just listened to a, a podcast on Edgar Allan Poe the other day. What a, what a strange guy, but man, did, could he write? Um, but anyways, um, by the way, I think it's awesome that Baltimore, um, I'm not a big Baltimore Ravens fan, but I got a friend who is, and, uh, I think it's cool how they went with the Raven as their mascot because Edgar Allan Poe, I believe he lived in Baltimore for a while and that's probably his most famous work. He's got a lot of really famous work, but the Raven is probably his most famous. And they're like, you know what? That's what it is. That's our mascot. I, I just think that's so like, that's, it's clever, you know, like what, what are you, you know, I'm unfortunately a Chicago bears fan and what, you know, what do the bears do? Oh, let's just, let's be the bears. They're, they're strong. They're tough. You know, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get it. But like, no, there's some thought that went into, you, you know, the, there's two though that have like no thought. Okay. Part of this is I'm biased because I'm a Bears fan. I hate the Packers, but come on. What, what are you talking about? I mean, come on. We're going to be like the UPS guy, you know, if you're, uh, you know, I don't know, like a Packer. All right, whatever. And then the 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 worst, though, the absolute worst, the Browns. Come on. The Browns? Is it just named after the family that owns the team or something? I mean, what in the world? And they got like this random dog for, all right. What, hey, we're, 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 way off, we're way off track here. But, George, just like all these different mascots that, you know, you think of this pure black animal, you have deer like that on your ranch. What on earth is going on with these melanistic deer, George? Yeah, so we have in our, our, our ranch in Central Texas is uh, one of about eight counties uh, that are all together that have more melanistic whitetails than the rest of the world combined. And I know white, you know, basically country, you know, is everywhere. it's not like there's whitetails everywhere, but there are more melanistic uh, there. And so, uh, man, they're, you know, just kind of like when you think of something like, you know, albino, you think of something that's like white, it's, usually the lack of melanin well in the case of melanistic deer there is an excessive amount of melanin and you're getting that dark coloration um they say in our county i think we have 20 percent of our deer have signs of being you know dark abnormally dark was mm-hmm. their you know, quotation and you definitely see that and there's a lot of, you know, okay, that doe looks a lot darker. That buck mm-hmm. has, you know, a, a, you know I mean, we have some deer that have like one has a black stripe from her nose all the way up her head and all the way to the back of her tail. Whoa. We have one that has nothing but a black face. I mean, there's been some very odd, 
odd looking deer, but the full melanistic trait when it's exemplified it looks like a black deer or very very chocolate brown um mm. and there's uh i i happen to have quite a history in this property i've seen them for you know a good part of going on a second decade now and i happen to have the opportunity to take one in 2006 it was a seven and a half year old buck uh 10 pointer <laughs> and uh we had seen it. We had, there's a story I wrote called Black Beauty, and mm-hmm. um, you know maybe you can leave, link in the show notes or something. But yeah. basically, it's on my website too. And so, I wrote that story, got it uh, produced in a few different um, publications, and uh, just kind of the, the history of seeing melanistic deer in this particular one over the time. And we never got it on camera ever at all and until one of my buddies took us some live pictures of it and he saw it two days in a row and then he's like you should get here tomorrow man like, yeah. oh, man. i was like got done with the call went over to my wife i was like hey man what do you think about all this she's like well what time are we leaving in the morning i was like oh yes so we went yeah. there yeah made it happen and uh that's the right really answer cool. meg that's the right answer it, yes yes <laughs> yes it was wonderful so we went out there and and you know took our youngest and it was a really cool just the three of us at the ranch and um it it just so happened all the stars aligned and uh i got that um on veterans day 2016 which was also my grandfather who was a veteran bought the property and i always think about him a lot on that day mm-hmm. happened to be there it was a lot of really cool things that were tied in together and again uh you know there's the, the story kind of fills in some more greater detail of com- some cool synchronicities and things but um at the end of it i was contacted after i put out that publication by a professor who was in his last few years so i don't know if he's still there but he was at texas tech um and he was doing a lot of research on melanistic animals Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of unknowns in the melanistic world and i have um, interviewed a guy named jim heffelfinger he's Mm -hmm. a a meat eater contributor um works for you know the state of arizona uh wild game biologist there um, and he is, uh, when I interviewed him, he, he came on to my podcast and we talked about the, you know, this a lot. And kind of after we, after we hit, you know, stop on recording, we talked a little bit about melanism and we've had a couple of phone calls and texts back and forth there too. And there's really just not a lot known. So, um, there's some studies that, um, they're trying to figure out, but we've seen a lot of melanistic does over the years, but never with fawns, not one single time. I've seen a white tail this year, regular doe that had a regular fawn and a melanistic fawn. Hmm. So that gets passed through, but it's not, it's not necessarily from the melanistic animal. Like, I don't know, the male sterile. We're not sure. These are things that hopefully we can help to contribute and find out a little bit more. But in the meantime, it's fascinating. Um, another cool, you know, talking about the different color phases of deer. Yeah. If anybody gets a chance to, there's a an, an article Jim Heffelfinger wrote called uh, 50 shades of brown it was right around when 50 shades of gray was huge yeah, so yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. A good little the timing was a well played but there's a lot of different color phase uh white-tailed deer and other animals um you know that you see out in nature and you know some maybe just a genetic thing maybe there's you know and just regionally uh that there's the things that grow right with minerals that maybe can have some effect but over time um i find it to be fascinating but yeah we've uh We've got, I got another cool story coming out. You'll, I'll kind of leave that as the teaser yeah. uh, about melanistic uh, deer. And so uh, 
but yeah, so a second article is coming and um, awesome. I'm, I'm very closely connected. And uh, let's say if that did include taking another melanistic animal, maybe that author has taken some and put it in the freezer and is sending it into different genetic sampling materials so that we can learn more from the best and the brightest in the industry. But that's just, you know, that's, that's hypothetical. just rumors at this yeah, point. Yeah, you know? right, yeah. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking. Yeah, well, very cool. I'm excited to see the new story that comes out and um, definitely need to, uh, yeah, so the, the original, you said the Black Beauty article, that is on yep. your website. What is your yep. website, by the way? So sonofablitch.com because you just, you know, it's, I had no choice. Yeah. It's your last name, man. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So I've written one all my life and so I might as well lean into it. So that's a home to some stories. If you ever lose the domain, you could just go to gun, you know, be like gunslinger.com, Western (laughs) old West gunslinger.com. Cause that's your, your name sounds like that, man. But, uh, but uh no it's uh it's such a cool story and one that i really wanted to use for an icebreaker for this episode but uh the the conversation is going to keep getting better because george not only shoots interesting deer on his interesting ranch um but uh he wears a lot of different hats and has through uh his career um you also started uh when was it 2020 2021 when you and and uh, your partner, Colin, right? Your co-founder, mm-hmm. your business partner, Colin, uh, founded uh, Matt My Ranch. What year was that? Well, actually, we've, um, I think, you know, we kind of lost count. And I don't know if that's due to my age and just not remembering <laughs> properly or if it just feels. We've actually been, been doing the business since about about 17 years now. Oh, and really? Whoa, yeah. I didn't realize that. Wow. Well, we, we finally got a little bit more online presence and joined Instagram and started kind of getting out of the digital yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. Before that, it was a lot of word of mouth, or maybe we got some, you know, we got a couple ads that we put in some, you know, Texas Trophy Hunter and some magazines that were kind of local here. But, um, yes, yeah, so we started Map My Ranch, and a company where basically we were trying to get a map of my family ranch in Central Texas, and Colin at the time worked for some uh, GIS firm, and he got to borrow over the weekend one of their really high-end uh, GPS units. It was like yeah. $5,000 at the time, and this oh, thing could man. like get within five feet. And it was the best state-of-the-art. I mean, that same <laughs> thing is probably now on eBay for like $13 or something. Yeah, I know it. it. I know shipping. it. It's, it's, it's pretty depressing when you start thinking about that, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I remember buying a, I think it was like a one gigabyte hard drive. It was like $700 or something, you know, now it's like, yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, yeah, we, we hadn't really seen a place where we could get some maps done. So we went around with the GPS unit and marked different spots that we thought were interesting, or maybe it's a stand or a low water crossing or whatever it could be. And um, we basically put that over an aerial image that we, we bought and then made a printed map and then showed it to a buddy and he goes man that's cool you should map my ranch showed it to another friend the same thing man it was like after about four times we're like wait a minute got an idea here yeah uh, we just it's a side project it always has been but it's been growing um you know over over the years we've gotten to be it's been very successful we have you know clients all across the country we've mapped uh places and in every single uh, state and all, uh, and, and like, I think like five other countries as well, aside from just North America. Wow. Um, and 
it's you know the name Mount Ranch started because that's what we kind of is what we're yeah. doing. Texas ranches, but we've done you know public land. Uh, we do lakes, rivers, you know uh, trout, uh, you know fishing, you know areas, uh, and then we've done uh, a lot of you know parks or places people are going to be hiking um, and vineyards. We've done commercial development stuff. I mean anything you can imagine, uh, oil and gas, where someone wants a map, but still it's the majority is hunting related that we do. Yeah, uh, you know I mean and. In Texas, it's a lot of ranches, but now we've we're doing all sorts of public lands or you know different units and stuff that people hunt. You know, elk in Colorado. Hey, I hunt this unit. I want to get a map of that. And okay, cool. You know, what do you mm-hmm. want to do? Well, I'd love to take one with me. Okay, we got a weatherproof one that's foldable, tear tear resistant, or water resistant. You know, it's like it's that's the one you want to take with you. Okay, you know, then I'll take that. Hey, I want a laminated one so I can use a dry erase marker. We yeah. got that. You want vinyl hanging up? We got that. So we have like three different materials we mainly work with. Um, we can print up to the size of a billboard on vinyl. Um, there's a few wow. other parameter sizes on other ones, but we we have some stuff on our website that's kind of a sample sizing. But anything you want, we can. If you got a frame and you need it to be exactly this by this, we can do that. We get aerial imagery, and then we overlay boundary or any customized markers that you want. Maybe there's a feeder, maybe there's a scenic overlook, maybe there's a, a you know an area where you found a bunch of arrowheads. You want to mark it up. Maybe there's a hog trap, turkey roost, whatever it is you want marked. Um, then we can do that and we can do, you know, lat longe lines. We can do, you know, topography, anything that someone wants. So, you know, if any, and we kind of offer a, a free consultation. If anybody can call me up and I can walk them through the options and then kind of take it from there. But yeah, it's been something we just, we just finished our most successful year ever. You know, we have great partners like, you know, we go into that a little bit with, you know, yeah. sharing the land and then we also have been doing some work with, with a bunch of other companies and, you know, that have really helped to kind of promote and get us into other levels. We did a, uh, we were a part of the mediators uh, auction house oddities this year. Yeah. We that's right. I heard map. you guys on there. Yeah. It was cool, man. We're going to do that every year, any year that they want us, you know, I, I, I kind of reached out to Steve and told him, you know, Hey, why don't you, you know, throw that on there if you guys want and talk to Ryan Callahan for a minute. And they were like, this is great. And it raised, you know, I think 880 bucks or something like nice. that. Every dollar. That whole yeah. thing raised over a hundred grand and bought a chunk of land to, and with it, it's amazing that that land access initiative is cool. So we get to be a part of some cool things, um, like that, that just, we feel like we're giving back and we love being involved in, in the outdoors and the hunting lifestyle. So it's, uh, it's a side business, but it's a very fun place to be and it's growing and growing every year. So I'm, I'm, I feel very blessed with it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it's a great project, something very useful to, um, you know, hunters who who uh, have some property that they want to, uh, you know, be able to study more. And, you know, I, I was thinking one of my New Year's resolutions, I guess you could say, is less screen time every day. Mm-hmm. And um, I was thinking about, man, I spend a ton of time on Spartan Forge. And, yeah. uh, like, it's it's productive, you know, like I'm looking at, I'm looking at maps. I'm, I'm, you know, hopefully becoming, you know, a, a more informed hunter each time I hit the, hit the ground, but like that screen time. Whereas if you have that map, you know, 
the and you might be like, well, what difference does it make if you're looking at it on a screen versus on a wall? Well, let's be honest. When you're staring at your screen, all of a sudden you get a notification from Instagram or a notification from, you know, a text conversation or whatever, you know, and then you go into that rabbit hole. And the next thing you know, it's a, you know, 30 minutes later and you just spend all that time, you know, whereas if you get, I think we need to get back to uh, the written word a little bit more, uh, a little bit more often you know it gets yeah. us gets us off of the digital version get into that hard copy and uh, matt my ranch does that so i think it's uh i think it's a great tool for people to have well that's not the only thing you've done um i don't even really understand all the other work you've done but but uh you said matt my ranch is your uh your side gig what's your main uh line of work i uh work with a financial advisory firm called Blitch Associates, where uh, my father is president, I'm the VP, and uh, working a lot with municipal utility districts. Uh, developers go out and the areas outside of cities and they'll purchase uh, land that they want to develop and you can create a municipal utility district. So it's its own municipality, has taxing authority. And so a lot of times what they'll do is they'll um, be able to carry on debt. And so they will sell tax-free municipal bonds that, that go out and you know maybe 25 years. And as the area is developed with housing and commercial, then there's a taxation on that to pay that back. Um, and there's a, a lot of nuances within that, but um, each of those districts, once they get going, they need to have different consult, you know, uh, consultants to help them along, attorneys, engineers, you know, operators, uh, you know, yeah. you have the tax assessor collectors, financial advisors, and you have uh, folks that are doing all that. And really, it's kind of funny. My dad, um, he got into the industry well over 50 years ago um, when he was a grad student at UT um, in Austin. And it was... Uh, about that time that he just he worked in the industry he was amazing with numbers and then so he kind of was working with another company called samco capital markets and i at one point in time i was working for this firm and i didn't like some of the directions they were going in and so i put in my two weeks went and did this big trip to south dakota to work uh for with a lot of the folks in Piner's Reservation, and we can kind of talk about that in a minute, but it kind of a segue through, but it, uh, I ended up going on this, this journey and was working on a, a book at that time, kind of on my own. And then I came back and I was like, okay, well, what is it that I really want to do? And my mom was like, you know, your dad would really like to have you work with him if you ever wanted to. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, he's at that point where getting business and there's only so much you can take as one person in an office mm -hmm. and uh, once you start turning out business sometimes you don't get that next phone call right and so we're kind of talking about this and i came on for a six-month trial um i'm good with numbers and i'm i'm pretty good with people and just in the business world i, I felt like i could probably i uh, can't fill his shoes because he's the best at it and in, in, in the state quite literally they call him as the expert stuff on questions wow. but so i'm never going to fill those shoes but um, you know, I've learned a ton, but that first, you know, six months was going to be a trial because I was playing in a band, traveling around the country, performing music live. And so I was like, I didn't want to like leave the opportunity to where I could still do that. Like on like four day weekends, Thursday, Friday, right, Saturday, yeah, Sunday yeah. shows. And so I was like, you know, I, I still want to have this freedom. And, um, 
you know, the six month trial is closing in on its 20th year now. So, so far, <laughs> so good. You know, I'm still, still gonna, gonna see how that panders out. But, uh, you know, I'm a blessed guy. I get to do a lot of stuff that helps impact a lot of, uh, you know, communities around here in a good way, good clean water, good clean, clean infrastructure, uh, and just, feels like a good public service thing uh, i get to be with my dad every day uh working alongside him and the job also gives me the opportunity to explore other things and um have these kinds of side businesses where i can take phone calls throughout the day too because it's a, it's not something you you're constantly on there's times where yeah. you do your work and then you're waiting for someone to give you back information so it may be a day maybe half a day maybe you're working on something else but there's times between stuff that mm-hmm. i can still work on my other passion projects and you know that's uh so yeah that's that's my my day job is, is in the field of finance um and then you got Matt my ranch and then i got a few other things that i, I juggle as well and, and other side 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 businesses so, yeah you know, and running two ranches so there's <laughs> a few <laughs> few balls in the air at the moment yeah yeah definitely well it's interesting and it, it makes for you know makes for good content on your podcast and just a fun guy to talk to you get when well, you know I like how you use the term passion project. Yes. You know, uh, our passion projects do bring us some income, which is nice, you know? Uh, but, uh, we put in a lot of time into the content we produce and into you into Matt, my ranch and, and, um, uh, like, I think, sometimes it can feel like, man, should I really be doing all this? You know, this takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort, but mm-hmm. it just is so good for you as a person. You know what I mean? Like it, you, your depth of understanding and kind of like what we were talking about when we recorded that picking bones episode. And, you know, the more you explore a certain topic, um, the more you start to realize it's not about finding the right answer. It's about just gaining more perspective on it. And, and uh, you know, I think that that kind of happens too, when you, when you have so many different experiences, you wear so many different hats, you, um, you know, you just get a, a greater depth of understanding about so many different things. And so I think it's good, man. Um, as long as you can keep up with it and, uh, you know, and you, you know, you know, you, your priorities stay what they should be and everything. I think having a full, a full plate can be a really good thing for people. So, um, I think, uh, you do very well at all that stuff that as far as I can tell, and, um, you know, definitely, uh, definitely an interesting guy to talk to. So very cool. Uh, one other thing I wanted to throw in there was, um, you've had some, so you didn't really, as I understand, you didn't really work for Nat Geo, but you kind of worked alongside of Nat Geo, right? For a while. Yeah. Yeah. I had, um, when I was in college up in, in Boston, at Northeastern University, uh, I was introduced to the story of Leonard Peltier, who is a Native American political prisoner. Um, he was uh, he was incarcerated in 1975 um, for the alleged murder of two FBI agents. Um, since the prosecution said they don't even know if he was the one who pulled these triggers, it was a large shootout that happened on the Pine Reservation. There was a lot that happened. 67 uh native american you know families members were uh killed on that 
area mm. by militant groups and there was like people were there there's like so much going on but this story was presented to me by a uh, documentary that Robert Redford put out called Incident at Oglala and it mm. was about Leonard Pelly's Peltier's story and um, so I learned about it and then I wanted to put on uh, an event to raise awareness for it because Bill Clinton had talked about at the time he was going to probably uh you know grant him a pardon hmm. um, because it looked like he wasn't really the person that was you know he he, he got a, a bum deal no matter how you look at it i wasn't there on that day it was before i was even born so i don't even know the the circumstances fully sure. what exactly happened but you know all signs point to this guy didn't get a fair trial and um there was you know a war against the american indian uh people then at the time by the fbi and so mm-hmm. We, I wanted to learn more about it, and I did. And Harvey Arden was the guy who had, had basically put out Leonard Peltier's book. He was the editor of the book called Prison Writings. And so I called him out to uh, see if he would um, come speak at the event, and he agreed to. And I had a bunch of different leaders from different Native American communities around that area come in and talk. Uh, some people brought in some of Leonard Peltier's art and some of his close personal friends and had some statements from Leonard himself and some lawyers that work with him. And so there was a, it was kind of a big event and, um, that I kind of put together and kind of just grew as I put the pieces together, things came in, you know, it was like when, you know, good spirit behind something and it just kind of grew. And I just happened to be in the driver's seat. And, uh, after that, Harvey's like, Hey, you and I need to work together. And he had left, you know, maybe about, 10 years previous or maybe actually like five or six, he had left uh, national geographic where he was a staff writer for 25 years mm. um, and an editor. He went on afterwards to have multiple best-selling books, a lot of working with elders in the indigenous communities, putting together their life stories, messages, and words. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was planning on teaching high school English in Boston and had done my kind of a student teaching there and had, had grand plans on that. And then he said, right as I was about to graduate uh, college and didn't really know what the next step was, where exactly I was going to go. He's like, Hey, there's a, a group that I work with in Western Massachusetts. Uh, you can come have free room and board and work with us. You can have half uh, one fifth of the company called dream keepers. And we're going to have you be the multimedia guy and run video and photography. And, you know, you'll come out and you'll sit by me while I interview everybody. And we'll put together living books wow. which were at the time, like kind of like eBooks or website yeah. mix. Like it was like a website and then you could, you know, subscribe and you get all these chapters that you would read of that person. Or it, we did like a, a bunch of webinars, like early webinars. We're talking like, you know, 2000, 2000 one and stuff where wow uh, we were doing stuff with like harvard and a bunch of colleges up in the east coast and so i'd kind of do the multimedia background thing and he would go up there and be the rock star author and you know then we'd bring in all these elders of communities and have them share things and we'd take part of their ceremonies and so it's just like it was i kind of got immediately brought into the fire in that world yeah. Um, and had a sweat lodge with um, a guy named Chief Orville Looking Horse, the 19th generation keeper of the sacred white buffalo calf pipe. It's been passed down 19 generations wow. through his people. And That's he's crazy. A holder of it. It's nuts. It's, 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 That's over a thousand guy, years. Yeah. It's a long time, man. It's it, the story of their that people come nuts. from a uh, white buffalo, uh, a lady 
came to the, the these two Sioux warriors and one lusted after her and he was left in a pile of ashes and bones and the other one was there and he begged for mercy and she said, bring your people, I'm going to teach you the seven sacred rites of the Lakota pe- or of, of the people and that you'll follow. And so the Lakota people did that. And so at the very end, she goes and turns into the four color of different buffalo of the nations. And then at the like her calf pipe was what was left behind, which they made a pipe out of and it's been passed on. So I published a book called White Buffalo Teachings with this gentleman and um my very first sweat lodge was with him and he's like, come sit next to me, George. And but after I get out, people are coming to me and like, how long have you known Orville? 16 hours. You know, <laughs> like, so most of the time he doesn't. And it wasn't because I was some, you know, there, I, I didn't do anything to impress the guy. I think the way I came at it and just wanting to respect and learn and I was open, but I didn't, you know, I just came with an open heart and open mind. And when I did that and I walked into a lot of rooms with a lot of these people and especially elders, you know, you and I, and I think we're raised and, you know, other folks too, that we may know and circle with elders are the ones who know the most and the elders in our communities and our families, we should be sitting at their, you know, knees yep. and, and listening to their stories. And so yep. to be able to, this guy from National Geographic that everyone knew this amazing writer, when he walked into the room and I was behind him, that draft kind of brought me along with him, yeah, you know, it right. wasn't like my doing at that point. And I felt it was my obligation to try to be there in the best way and be useful for whatever mm-hmm. it is that each project was for. And yeah. so I kind of went with that and we, we did that until he passed in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a company called have you thought publishing HYP publishing. And so it's mm-hmm. have you thought.com. Um, and we still had, we put out three books, two audio spoken word CDs, one of which um, got, or both of them got nominate, nominated for Native American Music Awards. It's like the Nammies as mm-hmm. opposed to the Grammys. Uh, and won one of them for Best Spoken Word, the Peltier CD. Wow. And, um, we did stuff with the elder from the Hawk Clan and the Seneca Reservation and South Dakota. But we've traveled and met with people all around the world. And I did a lot of work with the founders of the American Indian Movement. And so I, kind of found myself amongst some just amazing people and i was very you know honored and lucky to be uh welcomed into a lot of really cool rooms with some amazing folks yeah. so yeah, yeah sounds like that it. that was a big inspiration for like kind of doing the podcast you know is just now you can reach across we're, we're talking to each other in the comfort of our own homes before i'd be packing 400 pounds of equipment you know <laughs> driving 16 hours and yep. setting it up and trying to get the lighting right you know blowing fuses in people's houses and breakers yeah. you know so. yeah <laughs> yep for sure man and you know it's interesting um you know we have a mutual friend in in doug Duran, and uh i was recording a podcast with with doug back in november when he came out to visit us at hoxie and mm-hmm. and uh i had mentioned that you know, a common thing that Doug and I had was we were, were both former teachers. And I didn't know that about you, George, until just now. And Doug said, yes, Kent, but we're still teaching. It's just we have a different classroom. And I think that that's, I think that's part of what keeps me going with, with creating content, you know, both here on the First Gen Hunter podcast and our work podcast, the Prairie Farm podcast. There's something, and I imagine it's the same for you and definitely for Doug. Think of the outreach Doug has. Um, And, like, there's something inside of us. There's still a teacher 
aspect of we want to share information. We want to help people through sharing knowledge and not that we have that knowledge, but that's the power of an interview is you bring in somebody who does and uh, somebody who's an expert and they can, you know, share what they know with, with our audience. And that's, that's a powerful gift to, uh, you know, bring before people. And obviously you're passing on kind of what you benefited from with, uh, um, your colleague. So yeah. And mentor. So yeah, very, very interesting story. Glad, glad we went through that. I know it's a little bit different guys back way back in the early days. We used to ask pretty much everybody what they did for a job. I haven't done that in a long time, but, but for George, it was worth it because, uh, just how uh, unique his, uh, work is. So, and has been, so, uh, uh, yeah, really, really interesting stuff, but let's get back to hunting here. Um, yeah. As you mentioned, you're a ranch owner. Uh, I imagine you do much of your hunting on your own ranch. Um, is that is that accurate to assume? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a, a family ranch in South Texas that's been in my family for five generations. Um, so uh, we, we hunt there a, a lot. And then uh, my wife and I own a ranch in Central Texas that uh, my grandfather and father had. And then it kind of got split up a little bit. And so my father uh, you know, gave me uh, his portion. Um, so he still comes out and everything too, but it's just, you know, I'm in, in name it's ours and, uh, in operation it's, it's, uh, mine that I'm running with, you know, uh, out there. So yeah, the other yeah. one we, we help out and help manage, but there's someone else who, who helps out a lot. You know? <clears throat> I mean, both, 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 there's a lot, a lot of many hands make light work, you know? So that's right. That's right. It's, it's hard to run that all myself. There's definitely a lot of people involved. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's, that's awesome. But, uh, yeah, let's talk about a topic that we have not yet hit and uh 200 and this is episode 204 i believe first time we're talking about it um we're talking about hog hunting and uh when i first got into hunting i don't know what it was you know so like when i was a kid um i was my parents talked about how i was obsessed with uh guns um they tried to keep guns out of my life uh they didn't buy me any toy guns they didn't buy they you know first gen hunter podcast right you know i did yeah. i did not have a hunting upbringing um you know and uh they wanted they wanted uh guns to you know just be a thing i didn't know about but the problem was i you know either saw them on tv or a commercial or you know however i was exposed to them i got exposed to guns and i thought they were awesome so much so that i started eating my uh, sandwiches into like my little pb and j's i'd eat them into the shape of like a you know a revolver or something you know and uh i'd uh pretend it was a gun and they were like okay this is hopeless so they you know start buying me squirt guns and stuff like that i'm sure cap guns that's what i got they there got, you go got the cap yeah. guns but um uh so I think when I first was getting into hunting, like there was still that interest there, you know, I didn't have, I, I did have a BB gun growing up and I had some pellet guns, um, growing up, but I never really had like a true firearm until, um, after I got married. And, uh, this was actually my wife's wedding gift to me. It was a Remington 870 pump. And, uh, well done. Well that's done. right. That's right. 12 gauge. <laughs> I think I went with a 28 inch barrel, you know, a little bit longer barrel just so I could hunt more stuff with it. 
and um uh yeah that that was uh you know the first gun that i owned and i felt like it just felt so good to have one you know and um so i i say all that because i think there's certain forms of hunting that are very much about the firearm as well as the hunt um predator hunting would be one uh like coyote hunting especially um i mean man you look at the technology that goes into some of those coyote rifles now it's just wild you know that you talk about an expensive uh, piece of equipment there sure. um but then also hog hunting you know you you can see uh guys shooting hogs imagine with anything from a muzzle loader on up to a minigun mounted on the side of an airplane, you know, or not airplane, a helicopter, you know, like there's all kinds of wild ways people shoot hogs. And a lot of it is about the shooting experience too. You know, it's not just about the hunt, but about, and so I kind of think that that's why, but early on in my hunting that I just kind of thought, okay, when I get into hunting, yep, there's going to be pheasants, there's going to be deer, and someday I'm going to go on a hog hunt, you know? And, like, I've gotten away from that. I definitely want to do it, but it's like um, I've done a couple hunting trips since then. I did a northwest Montana bear hunt. I did a Nebraska mule deer hunt, and, you know, next year I'm hoping to be able to fit in an elk hunt, you know, but it's like what what changed here, you know? And, and maybe... Uh, uh, maybe, I don't know, that's why I haven't had this podcast yet, but maybe it just took until I met George. I don't know. But well, you, well, I, I'm having you down. We're going to fulfill that void in your life. So hey, I'm, have this I'm all for it, brother. I'll swap you, know? you, I'll swap you an Iowa whitetail hunt for a, a hog hunt sometime. That would be a it's ton done. of fun. It's on yeah. record. We're going to do this. We're going to make it happen. I love <laughs> it. Sounds great, buddy. Let's do it. I Yeah, I'd love to do it. And, um, we're going to talk about that tonight. You know, uh, we're going to talk about hunting hogs and that is a big deal down in Texas. And, uh, right away, I think we need, we need to just, you know, talk about the elephant in the room with hog hunting, uh, hogs, the, the, the word is out. You know, I think there was some important pieces of media coverage on wild hogs back in the, oh, you know, twenty. 10, 20, you know, 15 time frame. Now, most people with a pulse um, and uh, old enough to read know that hogs are a scourge from a um, environmental standpoint. They cause unbelievable ecological damage and beyond just ecological damage, agricultural damage, um, as well. And, uh, so people look at hogs as like, Whoa, man, as far as invasive species go, that's public enemy number one. But a lot of people, and, and you know, uh, we both enjoy consuming meat eater content. Uh, Steve Ranella has often said, do people really want to get rid of the hogs though? Like, do, do they really want to do that? Because it seems like a lot of people really like hunting. In fact, there's a lot of people that make money on hunting hogs, you know, 
guides, uh, ranches that, that sell hunts, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff, right? There's like an industry around it. And so do people really want the hogs to go away? And I've, I've had that thought myself. It's a, it's a interesting, you know, kind of little tricky situation there, but, um, I don't, we don't have, we have tons of hogs in Iowa, but they're all in confinement sheds. Um, yeah, yeah. uh, what like is the, the wild hog problem as bad as it's perceived? Is it blown up? And if Texas really said, you know what? These hogs are so bad. They're so damaging. I know we're a huge state, but we got a lot of people that like to hunt here. We are going to, as a state, take the next, I don't know, three months, and we are going to eradicate the state of wild hogs. Could it be done? So, like, just explain the the quote-unquote scourge of hogs to us from a Texan standpoint. Sure. You know, and for, for those unfamiliar, I'll kind of, kind of start basic there that in the idea that you're, I think it's at the six-month mark that they can have babies. Right. So even if you're looking at six month to a year mark and you have a litter of six to 12 and it's not always 12, you know what I'm saying? It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, but even if we're just taking the most conservative numbers and we're doing six and we're imagining that out of six, that maybe three are females, you can see how exponentially quick those numbers rise to rapid proportions of growth. And that is just what's happened with hogs. Um, I, have a grew aren't the, up where aren't, aren't the boars always in heat too like it like they're always they're always ready to breed i believe so i i i don't know enough there's some other people i've referred to on that side of things but the the you know it's a very quick cycle for mm-hmm. them to have babies and then it's a very quick cycle for them to come back in and it's again it's it's well, something but, but that, the boars the the males don't they they are always like looking around for a, a female in heat it's not like they, the white, white i believe they, rut, they, right well they are and there's where some people actually have caught them and barred them by literally cutting off their testicles and then letting them back loose so that they're thinking about only food they aren't they don't have other you know biological urges they're gone in that sense and so all they do is eat. And so sometimes you've seen these world record hogs. Oh man, this 800 pound hog that this guy shot uh, in this Arizona. Yeah. Hogzilla, and, right? <laughs> Hogzilla. Like it, you know, and sometimes they're kept in captivity, then released, you know, on, on some of those you find out. And then um, some you won't see uh, that they're carrying anything because they've been barred. And so that is something that I've seen some that are extraordinarily large in person, uh, 400 pounders, wild hogs. And we saw on camera, um, never got a chance to shoot one, but I went after him. But uh, all the pictures that they were definitely barred hogs. So that has been a practice that people do so that they aren't helping to recreate, but they're still leaving them there to get bigger, you know, and it's, uh, I don't do that. And I don't agree with that, but um, it is something that, that you've seen, especially with those big hogs, the hogzillas of the world. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing about them is, they're displacing a lot of the native animals in, in whatever area they're in. They are eating up a lot of maybe dissimilar foods. Um, they are very aggressive. 
people have planted whole rows of crops and like whole fields and then hundreds of hogs can come in that night and destroy it i mean it they cause billions billions with the b dollars wow. of damage annually and the u.s it's been a big problem they've tried to figure out different things they've wondered about having some type of poison that they could eat that would only kill them and putting it maybe baiting just for them that only hogs can get to this particular things. You don't mm. want it to affect the other animals. Yeah. I remember one turned like the meat <laughs> blue and uh, then you could see visually that it had this poison. Um, but it, there's a lot of folks who have a big problem uh, with them being around because they are a nuisance. Um, I, there's roads that I used to be able to drive down that, like, I can still drive down them. There are two and sometimes three-foot holes that were there, mm. but not there yesterday, and then today they're there because hogs came through and rooted the area. And there's fields that I used to drive in with, you know, the UTV, and now, yeah. you know, you could hit a, a big hole and kind of damage your vehicle. I mean, and that's just in in my own experience and seeing it, you know, knocking down, you know, fences and getting into areas you're trying to keep them out of and there's no natural predators to them and you know they they populate quick and they move around a lot and they do a lot of damage and there's also you know a lot of people worried about waterways with you know because a lot of times they'll spend their time down the creek beds and you know, mm. there's obviously a lot of excrement there can be diseases there's different things that they're not i mean that can happen with a lot of animals right but um that's something that has been a big issue, um, you know, across the country. And it used to be in Texas, I think every, every state, but I mean, every County, but one has hogs, maybe all of them now, but you know, it used to be a, a wind problem. It wasn't, if it was going to happen, it's going to keep spreading. And those areas are just going to be more, we can't keep up with them as much as people try to manage it. Um, it's a very, it is so, so for one, yes, it is a huge problem. Um, economically, ecologically, uh, there is many issues that that come from hogs. You ask certain people who are the heads of conservation agencies or different folks, like if you had the magic wand, which is kind of the reference to what I think Renella had asked somebody, um, would you get rid of them all? And it's always like, uh, there's there's always a pause, whether it ends up with a yes or a no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because they're, look, they're, they're delicious. Um, it's, you know, it's high grade meat uh, that you can eat. If you're into the hunting culture, you want mm-hmm. to take them out because you don't want them on your land, but you're kind of glad they showed up to shoot them, to fill your freezers. There's the dichotomy of, of things there that coming together at play. And so, uh, and the paradox, but it's like, it, it is a, a presence. And sometimes like we had a, a we had about a thousand acres that the spot that we were hunting on at this one point and the neighbors came in and hired some helicopter uh, pilots that brought in folks with their, their, their guns, whether it be AR or shotguns. And they eradicated one big ranch that was near ours that had 340 hogs they killed over a weekend. Well, guess what? We didn't see any of them at our place for a whole year, but after a year, they were back in the same numbers. You see sounders, which is what you call a group of hogs, in the 15 to 20 range, and that would be three different sounders on a property. And, hey, the numbers are right back to where they were. And then I have I personally, on my ranch, I think I went, we trapped 100, trapped or killed, 
most of those trapped. And then the next year was 75. And I think we went to 50 and then like maybe 15 and then mm -hmm. they were gone. And about a year didn't see a single one. And it's like, now they're back and there's groups of 15. There's another sounder of eight, you know, and it's, Man. they just, they, they kind of go. So that's a, uh, a thing that, you know, even when you try to manage them, they, it, I don't think you can get on top of the management. It's, yeah, it's I don't know what it's going to take. It's, yeah. but a lot of people I think are, are realizing how delicious they are. It's like, um, there's some really good books. Uh, the hog book is one I'd recommend if anybody ever mm. wants to get into hunting hogs, Jesse Griffiths and a wonderful chef, great guy all around also has a great, uh, restaurant in Austin, Dai which if you come mm. down to hunt hogs, we're going to go eat there. Hey, that sounds like a plan, brother. And, but you can pick that up and learn about hogs, learn about butchering, learn about what cuts are working best with certain sizes and things too. It's a wonderful book that's educational and all. And so if anyone has any interest, I think that's a great one to, to kind of dive into first. But yeah, it's uh, definitely, I've seen a lot of, of changes with hogs over my, you know, 44 years here in Texas. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really interesting hearing from that perspective on it. Now, uh, you know, a thing I have on my, on my, uh, outline here is the eating side of it. So, uh, it's interesting how us two guys having this conversation, I'm one of the, you know, what probably I'd say what probably half the States in America have wild hogs half do not i'm in a i'm in the half that does not however from a domestic standpoint we're the top pork producer i think in the world you know we have something like you know many millions of i think it's like almost 30 million hogs here in the state wow. <clears throat> something like that uh that are all domesticated and um in the domesticated world, uh, you do not want, like, you obviously have to have some breeding stock, right? Although, you know, now with uh, artificial insemination, I'm not sure how many, uh, you know, I'm not super familiar with the CAFO or confined animal feeding operation is what that stands for. But I'm not really sure in the CAFO world how all that goes down anymore. My grandfather was a hog farmer. Um, kind of the old way of doing it, you know, which is open air hog lots and, and, you know, grazing them out in the pasture and having farrowing sheds and stuff like that. You know, uh, he said that when you had an old boar, you know, when it was finally time to butcher the boar, that meat was, he used the word, and my grandpa is a, he is a, a reserved person. He doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't, you know, so it, it, it was a pretty strong word for him to use, but he used the word rancid. He uh, said that, you know, an old boar, that's what gets turned into, he, he said pepperoni. Gets turned into pepperoni, gets turned into sausage, something heavily, heavily seasoned. Uh, that's what happens to boar meat. Is that, I've always wondered that when I see these guys shooting, you know, not hogzillas, but like, yeah. you know, a big boar, you know, maybe a 200, 250 pound boar, yeah. you know, is that meat? Would you say it's rancid? Like, is it going to, is it not going to be a good eater? Absolutely not. It's going to be a great eater. I Oh, really? Up, absolutely. So I got a buddy of mine who he, he's like, I won't eat hogs. No, he'll shoot them because we, we, 
take them out on the property because they mm-hmm. are an invasive. Um, and in a lot of counties too, certain times of the year, they'll have a bounty. So if you bring a tail, it's five bucks a tail. So we'll, we'll wrap them in, you know, Ziploc or foil in the freezer and stuff, and then maybe go get some of the corn money back that they've yeah. taken over the years. And so we, <laughs> uh, but he, he'll help out in that sense too, but he wouldn't ever eat them. And so not too long ago, um, this last hunting season. So we're, we're just coming off the, you know, kind of the, the tail end of 2023 and that first part of the, you know, fall hunting season. And there's still a little left here in Texas, but, um, it, it was the year previous I had gone in December, 2022 and taken, uh, two hogs that were right at 200 pounds, maybe 200, maybe 180, 185-ish or something. And, um, you know, you get to them and they stink. Man, they're just <laughs> it's a strong musk. It's a smell. And is it, is it like the like a farm, you know, like a pig farm smell? Or is it yeah. like a, is it a different smell? It, it, it kind of is. And, you know, it's it, from their glands, their sweat, they're just big there's uh, i mean it kind of depends if they've been coated in mud and different bugs i mean it's just mm-hmm. but there's just like a like i shot it it ran into the woods and it's like you don't need to even do like a blood trail you just like smell your way to it you're like there it is <laughs> um so that idea there i think is the thing that's off-putting to people man oh this big stinky boar and then what happens is you put it up and then you skin it off and then you got it, and then you go, wait, I don't smell any of that rancid smell, dirt smell, musky smell, the glands, none of that. It's just like this really awesome, amazing meat. And I think hmm. there's people who don't go to that next level of seeing that and you having a butchered hog and going, a feral hog and going, oh, okay, now I just have some really high-end meat that I'm working with, you know, and so... right. It, there's off-putting things, but I think you have to get over that. And when you do and you work your way through it, then you look at what it is, is that ability that you have to prepare it for, you know, like a, a bigger one is going to maybe have a different preparation. The first thing that Jesse talks about in that hog book was making a brine. So, like, I would take back legs and I'd get a five-gallon bucket and some good mill, you know, five mil thick, you know, garbage bags and soak it for you know, 18 or 24 hours. And I think that that helped. Um, but I, I put that in front of my buddy who was, you know, anti hog eating and never would never tasted a good one. No one's ever made one any type, yet alone a boar. He's like, dude, this is a really good meal. I was like, that's the smothered chops from Jesse Griffith's a field book. And I was there like, you I'm go. telling you, man, and he's like, oh, okay, well, I might reconsider. No, I still won't shoot him, but <laughs> or eat him. But it, I think he just thinks it's a lot of work too with a big old boar, man. Those those oh, those yeah. hides are so thick, and I think people don't realize how thick. I shot one in the chest, staring at me, at like 115 yards, and hit it in the chest, and it dropped. And I was like, "All right, that felt good." And then I unloaded the gun, and I think I was. I mean, grabbing some, putting my binoculars down. So I'd kind of gotten everything up in a hurry and it was kind of resetting. And then I looked up and the thing stood up, shook off and like walked away. And I was like, what? There's like one drop of blood, but that they, they have like a, it's like a thick chest plate, man. I mean, it's like oh, armor. Man. So you've got to like those, they are a very, very tough built animal, especially they're 
Texas, they they thrive in that thorny mesquite areas that mm-hmm. you know you got you have to be tough to survive. They're they're built for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting to learn about them in that way, and and also the tusks, right? Since they're a wild hog, they're going to be having those tusks that are going to continue to grow, and those things are razor sharp. Um, they can they can. Well, there's the whole old phrase from old yeller, hog cut, right? Got hog cut yep. clean to the bone. You know, <laughs> time to do a sweet gum tree and he died of the slobbering fits. That's uh, right. But, <laughs> nice quote. Nice quote. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, hogs, they, they can be pretty uh, formidable animal, you know. Uh, now, like what's interesting is hunting – Obviously, you've given some examples through trapping has been effective and the aerial hunting um, has been effective for managing their numbers. But like uh, the state of Missouri, at least last I checked, they have hogs, but they don't allow hunting. They And it seems like counterintuitive. You're like, what do you mean you don't allow hunting? Don't you guys want to get rid of those things? And their answer to that is yes. <laughs> and they they argue that what they have found is that when people hunt them, uh, the it, it scatters the hogs more. You know, it causes them to uh, be harder to pin down because they're intelligent. You know, they can mm-hmm. they can adapt to that pressure, and um, uh, makes it harder to manage the numbers, even though it's already you know unmanageable, really. Right. And so, and so. Uh, They've taken that stance that, no, hunting is not a good management tool for hogs in that state. Um, Would you agree with that? Like, from what you've seen, is it like, yeah, you know, if you just tried to go out there with your, you know, AR-10 and, and, uh, you know, put a a night scope on that thing and sit out near a feeder – um, eventually they're going to get that figured out and they're going to be pretty hard to kill that way. Has that been your experience? Yeah. I mean, they, they're, they're definitely wise. Like you pointed to, they are an intelligent creature. And, um, I find that, you know, it's like, there's times when I feel like we're, you know, running through areas of the, the property too. And you're like, Oh, but there's a bunch of hogs here. Well, yeah. Well then once you're in there, they know you're there and they're going to go elsewhere. And so they're, um, they've survived in numbers by being, you know, smart in that world, by being Mm -hmm. able to continue to grow and, you know, become the population that they are, I'd say. Um, And, you know, it, I don't, I just don't know. I've known people who have had a living where they are by farmers and big ranches to come out and set up and, uh, maybe they're doing calling or maybe they're going out with the thermals or the night vision at nighttime and they're, you know, rooting up a big field and they catch a big field and there's 300 of them and they knock down, you know, 30 in a night and then they come back oh, the next night and they over time do what they can to manage it. But there's a reason why those guys also are being able to make a living doing it because it's so many and there's <laughs> not enough people back. maybe managing at the same time. Yeah. to be able to make that big of a dent. Or if you just, if all the other counties around you have it, and let's say one county just eradicated all hogs by really doing pro hunting measures. Hey, here's free thermals for you to use and rent and bring back to us. Who knows? It's like, let's just say that they clear that whole area out. Well, there's no, 
uh, you know, it's like there's that invisible boundary line of a county that, you know, hogs aren't really paying yeah, attention right, to. Yeah. So it's like they see a sign. Oh, okay. I don't care. So they're, yeah. they're it's going to be back in there. So I, I feel like it's a hard one. I, you know, again, there's, there's people that are smarter than I who, who don't have an answer. And that in, in this situation, I can just see it firsthand from a landowner, from a hunter and from my pulse on like that here in the region. And, you know, there's there like, for instance, there was a television show that my wife and I were a part of where uh, they were doing hog hunting and working with a lot of people with Texas Parks and Wildlife and mm-hmm. bringing in different uh, company, people who worked in the industry but hadn't hunted a lot. They're bringing them all together to hunt hogs. And then Jesse came and did a meal at the very end, cooked hogs in like four different ways. And um, nice. outdoor stewards conservation some other folks that were involved non-typical outdoorsmen they all came together oh did... yeah non-typical outdoorsmen yeah, yeah. you eric, know him he's... oh yeah eric's been on this podcast nice. awesome guy nice yeah. yeah that's the one it was uh it's a thing he and um uh jim from outdoor stewards conservation put together and he called me up said hey man you want to come be a mentor for this hunt so i mentored one of the hunters and that's awesome um, filmed it as well and so yeah i was so we were, my wife and i got to do that and then be a part of that and when we did we were in a high fence ranch and the thing that we that we were told about all those hogs is they actually had a funnel system so all the low fence ranches around them they would basically bait the hogs in or they would naturally come in because that area has a lot of really cool topography mm-hmm. and the hogs wouldn't be able to get back out so they sold hog hunts and they just had kind of a continuational loop of hogs that came through their property year round and they're helping the population so even like when you think about these high-end operations it's like oh well that's kind of a good you know way to yeah utilize that that issue (laughs) so yeah yeah definitely that's cool yeah yeah for sure well it's good to get that perspective um you know we are getting close to when we need to hang it up it's getting late but but um before we go i wanted to you know ask you on on the you know in terms of hog hunting like is the method that seems to be best is like hunting in the dark you know over a food source um especially feeders uh and you know having either you know a light on a gun or a uh you know a night vision scope or something like that um maybe even uh infrared scope or something but uh is that accurate like is that truly the best way if you wanted to go hunt hogs or is there some other way that you found is is better well, you know, I think I've killed probably the majority of hogs and my friends and people who are hunting at the ranches that I know, uh, you know, personally, it while they're in a, in a stand mainly hunting for deer or it, mm. or they've said, I, there's been hogs here. I'm going to sit here because I saw hogs on camera here. Or something. Sure. Um, so maybe the hog was this, the, the focal point. But those were normally during daylight hours, early morning, uh, late evening, you know, sunrise, sunset. Um, I've cert- I do hunt with a thermal sometimes. Um, Usually we work so hard at the ranch at the end of the day. I'm like, let's not go out at two to four in the yeah. morning and see what we can find. But we have, um, you know, areas that we will go and check or we'll come up to like a feeder at nighttime and go then to walk to these feeders and see if they're showing up or get a game show camera that tells us, hey, okay, you know, we're going to go over here now and try to sneak up. So we've, we've killed some hogs like that. So um, I think in those big numbers, in those big fields, when there's literally hundreds of them, 
in a night tearing up a field. And that's where you the thermal or the night vision or the good light or whatever comes to play yeah. um, or different types of really efficient traps to get them. But, you know, as far as hunting, shooting them, um, I probably bet that's probably the most numbers that you can get. But, sure. um, you know, a lot of times I'd shoot one and the sounder goes away. Sometimes a couple of them would come back. Um, but trapping has been the most effective tool. Uh, but mm. hunting, I I think it's like they're just they're twenty four seven. They're moving around. It seems unless That's it's really really hot. If it's hot, then they're laying down low at the bottom of a creek bed or something, and just chilling in the shade. But um, yeah, so it it kind of varies. And you know, I I think again, it kind of depends on what you're you're at. If it's maybe a really high end uh, agricultural heavy area. I bet you that the thermal in the middle of the night is probably going to be your play. Mm. Yeah. That's... And then you're using semi-automatic, you know, ARs a lot of times trying yep. to get multiple shots off at a time. So then there's people that, why do you need this? Well, I, I do know people who make a living off of having higher capacity magazines that they're out in the field shooting for hog eradication. Um, and, you know, you do use a lot of ammo if you're doing that because you're really trying sure. to take out this invasive species. And, you know, there's a there's two sides of that coin, but I I, I, I don't. I haven't gotten that opportunity. I've taken, you know, a couple with a thermal and that's, that's about it. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. It's good to get that ironed out and get, get a better uh, understanding of it. Um, before we wrap this one up, what's something that uh, people outside of hog, you know, country will say, uh, what's like a con, you know, a common misconception that, that uh, hunters who don't come from a hog state have about, hunting hogs and they kind of get that set straight for them when they finally do end up hunting hogs. You know, I, I really think a lot of it too, and I'm not sure if I'm answering your question the best, but I, I feel like the thing that is misunderstood a lot is about the fact that they, they can be eaten and mm. should. And I think a lot of folks, they just think of like, Oh, they're just dirty animals. And it's like, yeah, What's different than the pork loin that you just ordered at your restaurant yeah, or the, the other bacon. night? Yeah. And do you have any idea how that animal was raised? Like you might, yeah. if you, if you knew there's a reason why like 80, 90% of chicken inspectors don't eat chicken, right? There's certain places that you go, mm. if you see how it's really raised, you probably won't eat that or there again. Whereas yeah. hogs, you know, it's like eating dewberries and oaks and different things. And it, has different flavor profiles based on what it eats just like other wild game and so yeah i think when people lean into that explore it find some good recipes some chefs some suggestions um you know again i, I throw out his name just because I, I know jesse and he's one that i think is is probably one of the most well-known in texas yep. um and to take the lead if someone said they had hog questions i'd kind of point them you know in that direction especially cooking them um yeah. and i think if you go and maybe watch some videos and see how things are done, look at some of those brining techniques, some of the braisings where you bring in other flavors while you're cooking some of this thing. And you'll find that this 200 pound inedible rancid nasty hog can be the most delicious table fare you've ever had. So you never know. It's uh, it's something that, that you need to just realize there, there may be some tr- the fact that they are delicious and edible. And uh, that would be my misconception that I, I hear the most. 
Love it. That's exactly what I was looking for. Some something that we need to learn. And man, I'm sold. I'm I'm coming down to see you, buddy. Uh, let's hunt, let's hunt some hogs. They sound delicious. Um, I'm already just kind of dreaming about you know big old tomahawk chop or something like that. Oh um, yeah, we're just gonna barehand that thing over the campfire. Oh, I love while we're it. Recording I love a podcast. It, we'll, yes. we'll let you guys yes. hear us chopping down on that. How about it? Absolutely, <laughs> totally in for that, man. That would be awesome, caveman style, right over the fire. Love it. Now you're talking my language. Maybe we can kill a rattlesnake too. I've always wanted to eat like some uh, some uh, fresh killed rattlesnake. Oh, I've but, done that and prepared that. I know quite the recipes, man. We'll do that as well. We'll have a tomahawk-wrapped rattlesnake stew, man. It's going to be nuts. <laughs> this is awesome, man. Let's let's make this happen, buddy. But, awesome. uh, well, I just want to thank you, George, for doing this podcast with me. And and uh, just I, I know you're a busy guy and giving me being generous with your time, giving me a, a big chunk of your time this evening. Everyone needs to check out all that George has to offer. He's got, of course, uh, Matt, my ranch. If you feel that can be useful on your own hunting property, um, I guarantee it will be. We use it at work, um, and it's an awesome tool, uh, especially when we have people come and participate in sharing the land. we got to point out where we're going to be hunting and, and where people can expect to uh, find uh, different features or even when we're planning out uh, fields where for our production fields, you know, it's helpful for that too. So we just met around the map earlier uh, or sorry, today's Monday. So it would have been probably Friday when we did that last week. Um, my boss and my coworker and myself, we sat there, stared at the map. We're like, what about putting that field over here? Or what about over there? Super handy tool. You can uh, uh, check that out. Uh, just mapmyranch.com, right, George, yeah, for that? Yeah. And then, of course, the podcast, uh, uh, the Son of a Blitch podcast, of course, uh, relating to George's name, uh, George Blitch. Uh, and uh, so you could probably just Google that, and you could probably find the podcast that way too. But uh, excellent podcast. A lot of really incredible guests like uh, – Jim Shockey has been on there and Ben Masters from the unbranded film that you probably saw years ago on Netflix. And, um, let's see who else has been on there. Jim Heffelfinger and, and Boucher, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's right. This, forget. Th- yeah. Good. This, this mug named Kent Boucher has been on there. Uh, no, and, and George is a great interviewer. Uh, he just, he's a natural at it. So the conversations flow, um, Jesse Griffiths, the guy who, uh, and, you know, George was talking about uh, writing the um, hog book and the uh, a field book. And then um, Mark Kenyon uh, is another guy. And Mark's been on this podcast. And episode 100 much, for you, right? That's right. Episode 100. Yeah, and, that was a great one. Yeah, thanks, buddy. And uh, he's been on, he's been on uh, George's as well. ton of fun listening to Mark and, and um, you know, go right on down the list a lot of a lot of great names on there and uh um as we've talked about earlier in this episode just the unique experiences that george has colors um so much of the conversations on a show so definitely go check out uh everything george has to offer there and then of course uh, we're done checking out george's stuff Head over to the presenting sponsor, Spartan Forge. You can find a link there in the show notes or in my link tree on my Instagram bio. 
And uh, if you haven't yet gotten on board with Spartan Forge, you really should. Um, not only incredible mapping technology there, right there on your, you know, cell phone or on your desktop. Um, but the deer behavior prediction is just legendary. That's what Bill really made his mark on the industry with when that rolled out a few years ago. And so uh, you need to check out Spartan Forge if you haven't yet. Um, you can do a pay-as-you-go type plan where you do a monthly pay or you can do a um, you know yearly subscription, one-time payment each year uh, for that. That's what I choose to do. You save a little bit of money and you get all the features that Spartan Forge has to offer. Really a, a brilliant tool there. So definitely check that out. And uh, then also go to easttowesthunts.com for all of your hunt planning needs you want. I know the season's winding down now, but it's already time to be thinking about the 2024 hunting season. Um, if you're planning to uh, draw you know, a tag with from a limited draw situation, you're going to need someone helping you with applying for points or even just throwing your name in the hat and trying to draw a tag right off the bat. Um, Alex can help you with all of that. He then puts together a plan for you to help you be successful once you get to that, that spot, and that greatly increases your chances of finding success. I've seen that play out on my own hunts, and Alex goes to the greatest level of detail possible to make that hunt um you know, most likely successful for you. And we've talked to other people who've used Alex's services and, uh, they, they are in agreement with me. It's uh, truly a, a phenomenal thing there. So go to east to request a free consultation with Alex and tell them that you heard about him on this show and you'll save yourself 10% off of, uh, any services you book with him. So, uh, to get that free consultation though make sure it's something that you can use and then finally old barn taxidermy uh if you want to have something memorialized as a mount you need to do it the right way do not get bad taxidermy people bad taxidermy cannot be unseen and uh if you think it looks bad imagine what your wife thinks and if your wife thinks it looks bad imagine what your mother-in-law thinks yeah that that is you don't want that strife in your life people Get it done the right way. Go to Old Barn Taxidermy. Tell them I sent you there. That helps me out and helps them out. Know that uh, it works good to be partnering with me. Um, you can do uh, pretty much anything you want done from a taxidermy standpoint. Sam and his uh, crew there at Old Barn are going to be able to take care of you. So much experience there covering so many different species for decades. And uh, they do world-class level work at a very affordable price so check out old barn tax derby well thanks again george and uh thank you to the listeners until next time everyone take care and take someone hunting